0: conscientiously always shepherding and caring for the flock. <laughs> all right, y'all ready to get to work? Amen. We're going to be in the book of Revelation, chapter number one, so you might want to go ahead and start to get ready for that. Um, people often say a statement like this. Well, it all depends on your perspective. It all depends on how you look at things, right? And then the results of the story that they tell vary Greatly, depending on that. This month, October 2017, there's going to be a lot of churches that are going to be celebrating and talking about the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, who at the time was a Catholic monk, wrote 95 theses against the Catholic Church, and most specifically writing against the practice of indulgences, which was paying in order to gain favor from the church. And he nailed these 95 theses to the door of the All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany on that day. And that event typically is the keystone event that marks the beginning of what truly was a great time in history. But truly, it all depends upon your perspective. I'm guessing it wasn't the greatest time in history for the Roman Catholic Church. You know, a lot of churches see this event as the most significant, this event, this time leading into the Protestant Reformation, the most significant event or time in religious history. That's their perspective, And so as a result today, more and more churches embrace what is called Reformed theology as a return to the Reformation. And really all that is is code language for Calvinism and predestination. And the oddity of it all is that while the Reformers protested against the Catholic Church, the theology that those that claim to return to the Reformation now espouse can actually all be traced back to the premier Catholic theologian, Augustine. And the details of all of these things is not the subject of today. We covered all that actually two years ago in our 2015 Certainty Conference. But the point to make is that regardless of how you look at events It kind of all depends on your perspective, doesn't it? It kind of all depends on your perspective. Now, the Bible takes a little bit of a different perspective on these events. That shouldn't surprise us. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next two months. And the title of my message is A Biblical Perspective of Church History. A Biblical Perspective of Church History. And in your notes I put this, after the resurrection, the early church is recorded for us in the book of Acts. Probably a lot of you already know that. Acts begins right after the ascension of Jesus Christ and the apostles with the church in Jerusalem and then ultimately shifts to Antioch after the final rejection of the Jews in Acts chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen, the deacon and the preacher and becomes the first martyr. Immediately after that turning point with God then taking the gospel directly to the Gentiles in chapter 8, we find them going to Samaria and we find the Ethiopian eunuch getting saved. In Acts chapter 9 we see Saul of Tarsus get saved who eventually becomes the Apostle Paul and he is called specifically to reach the Gentiles. In chapters 10 and 11 we see the Apostle Peter and his vision of the great sheet that comes down from heaven with the unclean meats and God is teaching Peter that unsaved Gentiles can be saved as well. And Cornelius, the Italian, we find out is that is one of those that Peter interacts with. And in chapter number 12, we see the apostle James is killed. And after James is killed, unlike the deal with Judas, no replacement is found to continue to have 12 apostles. That's significant. In chapter number 13, we see the establishment and the introduction of this church in Antioch of Syria, and they send out the first missionaries, and they send them out to Gentile nations. And Paul and Barnabas are the ones that begin those journeys, and and they go through three different missionary journeys throughout the book of Acts. And it all winds down to the very end of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 28 and verse 28, and the last verses of the entire book go like this, be it known therefore unto you, that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles and that they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those which concern those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Now that's how the book wraps up. It doesn't wrap up like other books wrap up. Acts ends with Paul in under house arrest in Rome. He's preaching and teaching the word of God with no man hindering him. And so the book of Acts ends kind of without an ending. And it does so on purpose because the book of Acts just kind of then flows into the continuation of the life of the New Testament church. And according to the biblical record, the next historical reference that we find is in the book of Revelation, where we see the rapture of the church in chapter number four, and we studied this in detail this last week. It jumps ahead, literally, 2,000 years. But wait a minute, the Bible is the book of life, amen? It covers all of human history, from creation to eternity future. So let me ask you something. How could he really leave 2,000 years out? You ever think about that? Well, he doesn't. It exists in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. And so after finishing basically through our conference this last week, Revelation chapter 4 through 22, and if you have not had the opportunity to Follow that material. It's all on our website, and I really encourage you to do it. It's some fantastic teaching. I think that it's appropriate that we just go ahead and finish the book of Revelation. It will be a whirlwind, but we will finish chapters one today, and then two and three over the next couple of months. And so, the series that we're calling this this series, The Prophecy of History, The Prophecy of History. And the idea is, is that the time that it was written, the book of Revelation was written, was about 90 A.D., and the things that he writes about in these seven churches in chapters two and three at that time were prophecy. But today in 2017, they're history, okay? So that's kind of where we're at. Let me just mention to you how critically important it is for us to understand history. Um, I'm not gonna lie, when I was y'all's age here, and when I was y'all's age here, you know, in school, um, history was my worst subject. I didn't like it. I didn't care about it. Um, I didn't cheat, but I probably wanted to. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't value it. I thought it was just dumb old things that are done and gone, and who really cares? Um, let us speak to the rest of us now. Now that I have lived more history... All of a sudden, history is more interesting, you know, and uh, it is very, very important. So last week in our conference, we spent a lot of time learning about where we're going in the future with prophecy, right? And that's really important, amen? And in the next two months, what we're going to do is we're going to learn where we've come from, and that's history. And that's important because if you don't know where you come from, and you don't know where you're going, you honestly don't really know where you are. You don't know where you are on God's timeline, and that's the part that you need to know. You don't know where you're at on God's plan of His unfolding revelation. Therefore, you can't possibly know exactly what it is you're supposed to be doing because you need to know what you're doing based on where you are at in history and what God is doing. In fact... This idea of remembering where we come from is so important that God gave one of only two church ordinances that refer to it. And this is in your notes. The Lord's Supper exists so that we will remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us today. Now that's defined for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where basically Paul takes The bread, and he takes the cup and he says, Look, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is the cup of the New Testament of my blood, which was shed for you. This do ye as oft as you do it in remembrance of me. And he goes on and he talks about how we shouldn't eat and drink of it unworthily, that we should examine ourselves, and then let us eat, and then let us drink. We are to remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, where he saved us from. Always remember where you've come from, Christian, to keep your heart clean and your life fresh and your focus just laser focused on what it is you need to continue to do. And a Christian who continually and regularly forsakes the ordinance of the Lord's Supper is in danger of walking in some dirty, dirty waters. Because this keeps us clean. That's what he did for us. So you come to the Lord's table. You should be thankful. You examine your life. You confess any sins. And you get right with him. That's how important it is to go back and remember where you've come from. But you know what? Jesus Christ didn't die just for you. He died for the whole church. He died for the whole church. In fact, in Ephesians 5, it says that that husbands need to love their wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, for the church. He died for the whole church. The church of Jesus Christ is a living organism. It's made up of only saved people. We sometimes refer to this as the church universal as opposed to the church local. And the local church is critically important in God's plan. It is a picture and a foreshadowing of the ultimate universal body of Christ that right now, spiritually, each of us in the body of Christ from the time of the resurrection until today, everyone who's received Christ, according to Ephesians chapter 2, is spiritually seated in heavenly places. So the universal church is currently assembled together in heaven right now even though our bodies are down here and one day at the rapture of the church we will all be called up to meet him together in the air and we will be assembled then also with glorified bodies this is the universal church the local church is just a picture and a foreshadowing of that it's an imperfect picture just look around we all fall short The local church should be made up only of born-again believers, but you know, sometimes the guy sneaks in here and there. (laughs) You can never know a person's heart. That's between them and the Lord. So we take you at your word. You want to follow the Lord? Come join us. We're happy to have you. But nobody's faking out Jesus. He knows who belongs, right? Jesus died for the whole church. And so I want you to notice some things. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. These are all introductory statements. Know ye not... That ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are? If you pay attention to the Old English grammar, it really helps you. Ye is y'all. It's plural. So notice the personal pronouns are plural to the group. But the temple is one. It's singular. Ye are the temple. That's what it says. Ephesians 2 reiterates this in verse 19. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple, singular, in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, 9 says, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. And 1 Peter 2 gives us clarity in verse 3. So if, if so be, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Ye also, believers as lively stones or living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ so yes god instituted the ordinance and he wants each and every believer to be able to go back and remember where we have come from so that our li- our lives will be clean and we will do exactly what he wants us to do but also in your notes Church history exists so that we will remember the sacrifice of other Christians for us today. Because, you see, the church has to remember where she has come from as well. And so last Sunday morning in our introduction to prophecy, we looked in Revelation chapter 1 and we saw the first nine verses. And today we're going to complete the book of Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse number 10, and going to the end of that chapter. So if you'll just follow along, I'm going to read starting in Revelation 1 and verse 10. Apostle John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna and unto Pergamos and unto Thyatira and unto Sardis and unto Philadelphia and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. We're going to unravel this for us all, and we're going to understand it this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look into this introduction that rolls us into the next two chapters and the description of the church and churches, may you give us your biblical, eternal, perfect perspective that we won't come away thinking, well, that's just the way you look at it. Lord, we want to see the way you look at it so that we can better understand how we got here and what it is you'd have us to do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if we are going to get the biblical perspective on church history, we need to, this is your first point in your notes, have a necessary perspective from the future. The necessary perspective from the future, verses 10 and 11. It starts off, and John says, I was in the Spirit. When John says, I was in the Spirit, what he means is, I was not in the body. I was not in the body. In fact, if you flip the page to Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 2, he says it again. And We'll start in verse number 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So this idea of I was in the Spirit He was taking, he was transported forward in time in his spirit, but not his body. And he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now we studied this this last week, but just for repetition, the Lord's day in the context is not Sunday. Uh, It can't possibly be Sunday. I know a lot of guys preach that and it sounds good. You ought to be in church on the Lord's day. And I know we use that colloquially, but that's not accurate. Because the New Testament makes it very clear that no man should regard any one day over any other day, right? So that would contradict that. The Lord's day is very specific. It is the day of the Lord. It is the day of His second coming to this earth. So we're getting some context. I was transported forward in time, and I was transported to this time that is called the day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ, which includes the events leading up to the second coming we referred to as the tribulation. And it says in verse number 11, it says, what thou seest, I don't want to take a lot of time here, but I want to point out that seven different times in Revelation chapter 1, he talks to John about the things that he saw, the things that he saw, the things that he saw. I just want to point out, this is not an allegory, this is not mysterious, this is not a dream. John was transported forward in time, yes, God can do that, and he literally saw some things. Okay, And what he saw, he was to write in a book. Aren't you glad he did that? Aren't you glad you have the last book in your Bible, which is the book that he wrote of the things that he saw? Jump forward to verse number 19. What exactly was he to write? Well, in verse 19, it gives you the outline of the entire book of Revelation. Write the things which thou hast seen in the past, the things which are in the present, and the things which shall be hereafter. So you've got past, present, and future. But that's why we had to get the idea of I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day right, because you need to know when the now is so that you can know what the past was and what the future is. And so I'm in the Spirit on the Lord's day. John has literally positioned himself over the time of the tribulation leading up into his second coming. And the things that are past are the things of the church age. And the things that are now are the things of the tribulation, the bulk of the book of the Revelation. And the things that shall be hereafter, well, that's the millennial kingdom, chapter 21, and going off into eternity, chapter 22. And so this gives us our outline. This gives us our vantage point. This gives us our perspective on exactly what it is we're supposed to understand. And he says, write these things in a book and send them unto the seven churches which are in Asia. We would understand that as Asia Minor. We would understand that as the Middle East, literally in the nation currently called Turkey. So we have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so roughly you can do your own Bible map search, but you're going to find in the sub- southwestern region of the country of Turkey seven literal cities of that time, and that would have been where they were located. Some of those cities still exist today. Not all of them. They actually, if you want to take a vacation and tour the seven churches, they'll help you. They can go do that. I actually thought that would be a cool vacation. And so as in any passage of Scripture, right, we have three applications of Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. The first one is going to be the historical application. And that means that John is writing, Jesus Christ through John is writing to seven literal churches. So that's those seven churches. That's those seven churches on that map. They were local churches in the first century, in 90 AD, in Asia Minor. That's who they were. They had issues that they dealt with, and he literally wrote these churches to these letters to these churches. Inspirationally, the next application is that these represent seven types of churches. Seven types of churches, because any church in any place in any given time throughout history could potentially carry the characteristics of any number of these seven churches. And so if your church, for example, is struggling with an issue that is described by one of these seven churches, well, then that is a good devotional, inspirational application for you. And so that becomes a wonderful way to understand Revelation 2 and 3. But there is something else, and you've got to get that doctrinal application because it describes for us seven periods of church history. Seven periods of church history and literally what the Lord has laid out for us. Not forgetting the lost 2,000 years. He projects the prophecy from 90 AD forward of what the next 2,000 years are going to look like broken down into seven periods of history from 90 AD right up until 2017 or whenever the rapture ultimately comes. That's what Revelation 2 and 3 give us. That gives us God's biblical perspective on church history. And so while he does that, what he instructs John to do is to write. And the way that John writes, and we will get into this in detail as the weeks come, but the way God instructs John to write, there's a pattern. And that's what we see, the repeated study outline of Revelations 2 and 3. So the first thing that we see is that the church is called. The church is called. And when I say called, meaning he calls them by name. And so he says unto each church, Ephesus, and each name we will define for you. You don't need to write these down now. I'll just give them to you quick. But each church name has a meaning. And the meaning of the name of each church will be indicative of the things that they are going through in the time period in which they live. So Ephesus means fully purposed. Smyrna means, we will get into this in detail for each church. We'll take one every week, okay? Smyrna means bitterness and death. Pergamos means much marriage. Thyatira means odor, odor of affliction, odor of affliction. Sardis, red ones, red ones, a lot of bloodshed. Philadelphia, you know that one, brotherly love. And Laodicea, the rights of the people. The rights of the people. And so each name specifically describes the main issue that that church period dealt with. Number two, Jesus Christ is characterized. He's characterized. And so in each of the seven churches, you will see a phrase that is similar to this. These things saith he who... And it's talking about Jesus Christ, and it describes Jesus Christ a little bit differently for each church. He's presented in a unique way to each church based on that particular need that that church has. When you begin to see the events of history line up with the name of that church and the way Jesus is presented, you're going to realize there's more to this thing than just seven churches back then that inspirationally kind of help us. Number 3 the church's condition. In every case the Lord Jesus Christ says, not surprisingly, I know thy works. I know thy works. Listen, it shouldn't surprise any of us. Jesus knows what you've been doing, right? He knows your spiritual condition. And he will address each church's primary issue. And they will either receive a commendation, at a boy, or a condemnation. Yeah, you mess that up. Or both, depending on the church. And number four, this is the outline systematically repeated through seven different churches. Number four, the church is celebrated. Because at the end of each letter, to the end of each church, there's a phrase similar to this. To him that overcometh. And this speaks specifically of the rewards And literally the idea is the rewards for the individuals. The individuals that overcome the spirit of the age in which they live, live for the Lord Jesus Christ in accordance with His will and His word for their life. It will be difficult. It will be difficult for overcomers in every age because the spirit of the age will be drawing them in a direction that will be anti-Christ And they will need to be like the fish swimming upstream. That's why they are called overcomers. They are called overcomers. And so we will look at that in great detail. So John saw all these things from the perspective of the future. From the perspective of the second coming looking backward. When he saw these things and was told to write, the church age was over. So that means that the things that he wrote are certain. They're certain. Number two, we need also then to have a necessary perspective of Jesus Christ himself. Starting in verse number 12. And the first thing that we need to see in our perspective of Jesus Christ himself is we need to see that Jesus Christ is glorified. 1 Corinthians 15, 35. But some man will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, except it die. And then jump down to verse 40. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. So the view that we have of Jesus in Revelation 1 is the celestial body. We'll get to that in a second, but I want to remind you, Jesus had a terrestrial earthly body during his earthly ministry he was just a guy in a normal human body right and if you want an idea of the description of what Jesus Christ really looked like you're going to go to the book of Song of Solomon chapter number five because what Jesus didn't look like is what is frequently popularized in modern artwork of Jesus Christ where he's got the long flowing blonde hair and blue eyes and all that sort of thing, where Jesus Christ actually is a Mediterranean man and he would look like a Mediterranean man as is described in Song of Solomon. By the way, an excellent specimen of a Mediterranean man, I might add. Verse number 10, my beloved, the, 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 the wife, the love of it, this literally Solomon, who represents the Lord Jesus Christ. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among 10,000. His head is as the most fine gold. His locks are bushy and black as a raven. Curly black hair. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers. His lips like lilies dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with the barrel. His belly is as the bright ivory overlaid with sapphires. How you doing, guys? (laughs) His legs are as pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. Contrasting Jesus' celestial body, which is what John sees because he's transported in the spirit, remember. And we start in verse number 13. Let me read again. One like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps, the chest area, with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire. His feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters, he had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. A very different look, isn't it? And so, you know, no photographic equipment back then, but there's a lot of artist renderings, so I pulled up an artist rendering just to give you an idea of what, you know, some artist would have thought might have been a description of what we read in Revelation chapter 1. So the eyes are like flames of fire and the two-edged sword is coming out of his mouth and the long white robes and the gold across his chest and the stars in his hand and the countenance like the sun and John is falling down as dead in front of him. But in case that gets, you know, it gets kind of a weird look, I got another look for you kids. Maybe this will help you. So, you know, the Lego version... (laughs) Maybe, you know, the younger crowd might relate. Okay, so I just wanted to be an effective teacher and help you with that. Jesus is glorified and ready for a Lego movie. Okay, so, letter B, Jesus is also in the churches. In the churches. It says that he walks in the midst of the candlesticks, and the candlesticks are defined for you in verse number 20 as the churches. That means that he is present in his glory in the midst of the churches. And that shouldn't surprise us because Ephesians 3.21 says that. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So you have to ask yourself, what is a candlestick? Why did he use that imagery? By itself. I mean, candlestick is just a chunk of metal or clay, or whatever, right? I mean, the value of a candlestick is that it holds a candle or a lamp. It holds the thing forth that gives out light. The candlestick doesn't have any light. The candlestick is just the place where the light shines forth from, right? The light, the candle, the lamp is the word of God. It's thy word that's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And it's fueled by the oil of the lamp, the Holy Spirit, right? That's the picture. So the place where the candles are to shine their light is from the church. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Philippians two fourteen. do all things without murmurings and disputings. That'll put the light out if you don't do that right. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the candle, holding forth the light, the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. So Jesus is in the churches. Man, that ought to encourage you. But one thing that church history is going to teach us Satan's also in the churches. Satan's also in the churches. Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 9, this specifically is written to the church in Smyrna. I know thy works, there it is, and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. A bunch of people gathering together and saying they're God's people, but they're not. They're the synagogue of of Satan. You could go down to verse 13 and the next church in line is called Pergamus, and it says, I know thy works. There it is again. And where thou dwellest, notice, even where Satan's seat is. He's writing to a church. Satan has a seat. Don't look around. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> And thou holdest fast my name and hast de- not, not denied my faith. He's praising them for the, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, notice where Satan dwelleth. So Jesus is, he, he's among the churches. He's, he's in the church, and well, Satan is too. Therefore, it should not surprise you that the church becomes ground zero. The church is the current day spiritual battleground. Why would you be surprised when there's fighting and warfare going on in here? Why would that surprise you? Why would you not understand that Jesus Christ has his place and, oh, the devil has his place? For now, anyway. Be reminded of Ephesians 6, 10, "...for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places." And just like Jesus Christ chooses to use us, how humbling, to do his work, the devil also uses those who yield to his spiritual influences to do his work. And they do that because the devil's goal, right, is to put the light out. Put the light out. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God small g of this world, i.e. Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Why? Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So the church is the location. The church is the place where God desires for his word to shine out from to the whole world so his glorious gospel can go forth and the blinders come off and people see and they humble themselves and they receive him and they get eternal life. And this is his plan and he works through his churches and he's glorified in his churches, but the devil says, wow, that's where it's all going down. I better show up. I better show up and see if I can stop that thing before it ever gets started. God created Adam and Eve perfect and put them in the garden, and before they could begin to carry out the commission, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth, Satan showed up and got sin involved. Before it ever started. Jesus Christ told his disciples, you don't take a candle and put it under a bushel. The light's got to shine. And that's what we see. So you go back and you study the book of Acts. I really encourage you to do it. Go back and write that down. Go back and study the book of Acts and see that the back and forth and back and forth of all the stories, it's like a chess match. God moves, and then Satan counters to try and stop him, and then God does something else, and then Satan counters to try and stop him, and God does something else, and Satan counters to try and stop him. And so it has unfolded all throughout history. So from the perspective of seeing Jesus Christ as he is and the devil as he is in your notes. Church history reveals the work of God to establish his church and the work of the devil to establish his counterfeit churches. That's what we're going to see. But not only that, we're also going to see, church history reveals the work of God to establish His Bible and the work of the devil to establish his counterfeit Bibles. <gasps> People get all fired up about that. Well, why would you? It was going on in the very first century. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17 has not escaped your notice, I'm sure, for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. It was going on back then, y'all. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse number 2, Paul says, "...that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, notice, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand." They were confused as to whether they missed the rapture. Why would they have been confused that they might have missed the rapture? Because some people were out distributing letters and saying, "...these are the letters of the Apostle Paul." And Paul says, don't be confused by letters as though they were from us. They weren't from us. They were perverting and corrupting the word of God because that's what the devil does and has always done ever since the first recorded words out of his mouth in Genesis chapter 3. Yea, hath God said that you can't eat of every tree of the garden? And begins to place doubt. So, Jesus is without question glorified. Jesus is among the churches, and let her see, he is ever communicating. He's ever communicating with us, amen? So, it talks about in his right hand are seven stars. And again, the seven stars are defined in verse 20 as the angels of the churches. What's that all about? Well, let's just take it as the lord gives it to us who are angels what do they do according to hebrews chapter 1 and verse number 7 and of the angels he saith who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire so an angel is a minister of god an angel is a messenger that carries god's message in the Old Testament, we have stories. Gabriel brings a message to Daniel as he's praying. Michael, brings angel, he brings an angelic answer from God to, to men. So angels become messengers. They become ministers. They become those who, who represent God in the message to the people. Well, in this context, if we spend a little more time, and we don't need to do it today, they represent the church before God as well. There's this idea of a spiritual representation in the very throne room of God before our Heavenly Father of what that church is really all about. And so he communicates through this messenger. So to dovetail off of the things that we've learned already, church history now also reveals the work of God to establish his ministers and the work of the devil to establish his counterfeit ministers. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it's no great thing if his, Satan's ministers, also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. I mean, why would it surprise you? I mean, the devil is, I'm telling you, not all wrapped up in skid row with drunks and hookers and sinful behavior. That is just the outpouring of people's flesh. The devil is involved in religion. The devil is deceiving people standing up. Remember the ultimate goal of the Antichrist is to sit down in the temple of God showing himself as God until people will worship him as the very Jesus Christ. He is a counterfeiter. So we have a counterfeit church and we will have counterfeit Bibles and we will have counterfeit ministers who will pose as ministers of righteousness. And if you set two of them on the stage right next to each other, in fact, I dare say if Jesus Christ and the devil today showed up next to each other, you might not be able to tell them apart unless you have a holy word that can tell them apart. Because he transforms himself into an angel of light. Don't be deceived. So messengers bring messages. And Jesus Christ then, here's how we can apply it to ourselves. This is in your notes. Jesus communicates through his chosen leadership. He communicates through chosen leadership. He sends messages. And the leadership represents the body before the Lord. So stars or angels right, it says are in his right hand. And that right hand throughout the scripture is a place of blessing. Matthew 25, 33. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, the stars in his right hand, that's a place of blessing. That right hand is also a place of power. Psalm 20 and verse 6 says, Now know now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. That's a place of strength. It's a place of power. It's a place of blessing. And you know what else it is? It's a place of trust. Isaiah 62 and verse 8, The Lord hath sworn by his right hand and by the arm of his strength. And when he has sworn that something will happen, you can take it to the bank. It's going to happen. You can trust it. You can know it. It's a place of strength. It's a place of power. It's a place of trust and comfort and security. It's a place of blessing. And the angels, the stars, are in his right hand. Because if you're going to have a biblical perspective on all of church history, you have to have that necessary perspective of Jesus Christ. Can you see Jesus Christ that way today via this revelation of himself? Because if you can, then we get our last point. We'll be done in a second. A necessary perspective for our lives. For our lives. Really, verses 17 and 18. And you know what? Our right response is, to seeing Jesus Christ as He really is in His glory is exactly John's response. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as dead. As dead. Not like a lot of this charismatic nonsense that goes on in churches and people say that they were in the very glory and presence of the Lord and they're jumping and they're shouting and they go into uncontrollable laughter and this sounds like I'm making this up. They start barking like dogs and doing all kind of crazy things. And people do that as though they have been in the presence of the Lord. And the Bible says, no, if you are ever in the presence of God in his glory, it's over. You fall on your face. That's what happened to Joshua in Joshua 5, 13. It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes. Remember the story? And he looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And I love Jesus' response. He said, No. <laughs> I'm not for you or for them. The real question is, are you for me? That's the question. But as captain of the, Lord, of the host of the Lord, am I now come. Joshua realizes who he's talking to. And he fell on his face to the earth (laughs) and did worship and said unto him, what saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, loose thy shoe from off thy foot for the place whereon thou standest is holy. Because Jesus was there. That's why. Remember the story in John 18 and they went to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane coming up from prayer. And it says, they came to take him, and as soon as they had said unto him that he had said unto them, he said, you know, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he said unto them, I am he. And and that statement, that powerful name, the the great I am, as soon as he said that, what happened to everybody? Fwoomph! Straight to the ground. That's what you do. That's what you do. Because you know what? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. When you see the life, you don't have any more life. You don't have any more life. So our right response to seeing Jesus as he is is to fall down as dead. He wasn't actually dead. He was as dead. That's important. Jesus' response then to John's right response. Hey, fear not. Fear not. I am he that liveth. I was dead, but you know what? I live forevermore. I live forevermore. Oh, and by the way, I have the keys of hell and of death. I have the keys of hell and of death. So you know what? Number one, there is no need for a Christian to fear death. Amen? No need whatsoever. Jesus Christ died your death, and he still lives. You couldn't go to hell if you wanted to. You have Jesus Christ in you. He has the keys of hell and death. Just open that door and leave. There's no reason for you to ever worry about that thing again. To think that you could be saved and potentially lose that salvation is a blasphemy from the pits of hell. You are eternally secure because Christ is in you and He is alive forevermore. You have eternal life today. This was true of Jesus Christ Himself in Acts chapter 2 and verse 27 because Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, referring to Jesus, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one, to see corruption. In verse 31, he seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ and that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption, which is why he had to come out on that third day because the Jews understood that fourth day is the day corruption sets in. It's the day corruption sets in. Then we see, fast forward a little bit in Ephesians chapter 4, Uh, Starting in verse 8, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. Now he that ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth, Abraham's bosom? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And we have literally the first rapture. They were dead they're alive and live forevermore. And then we come to 1 Corinthians 15:54. So when this corruptible our physical bodies shall put on incorruption glorified bodies and this mortal shall have put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is thy sting O grave where is thy victory the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law but thanks be to god which giveth us the victory through our lord jesus christ and you have the second rapture you have the second rapture christian if you are sick if you have a disease, if you have loved ones who are sick and have diseases, and we all have a little trembling about leaving this life, fear not. For I, I am alive. I was dead, but I live forevermore, saith the Lord. Amen. There is no reason to fear. Number two, something else we can learn. Church history proves that death can't stop God's word. Death can't stop God's word. These people lost their lives, yet they live because they saw Jesus Christ in his eternal perspective. We read this just this last week. Hebrews eleven thirty-five. 35, Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better Resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment, things they suffered. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, tempted, slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in the dens and caves of the earth, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise during their earthly lives. When we study church history and when we get the perspective, of Jesus Christ and his glory, when we understand the perspective from the future, we get the perspective for our lives and we realize that even death and torture cannot stop God's word and that's all that really ever matters anyway so that we can propagate that word, we can be like candlesticks that hold forth the word of life so other people can get it, so other people can continue because whether this mortal body lives two or three more days or 50 more years really doesn't matter because you know what y'all, I'm living forever. And so are you. We're living forever. And some of the things that those people went through maybe can help you to overcome the fact that, well, you know, (laughs) I got a sniffle. I Can't seem to get around to doing what the Lord wants me to do. Just something to think about. This is going to be a good little perspective shift. Finally, number three. Christians today, like John, like those in church history, can live as dead, yet alive. You know that? Galatians 2.20. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. I'm crucified, yet I live. I'm crucified, yet I live. Oh, wait a minute. Yet not I. I'm not the one. I forgot. Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So I can live my life as dead, yet living. That's actually exactly what he wants. So Jesus calls us in Luke 9, 23. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Every single day, every single minute, you have a choice. Whether you will die to your fleshly desires and yourself and let the Lord live through you, or whether you're just going to say to the Lord, "I, I got this, I got this one. Now, we wouldn't say that out loud, but we say it. We sure enough say it. Listen, church history may very well be the most important subject to study for the church today. It will put steel in your spine. It will give you courage to stand through adversity when you learn about the things that others have endured so that you could be here worshiping freely with a perfectly preserved Bible in your lap. Used of the Lord to propagate this to yet others before it's too late. And just think about it, y'all. Just think about it. We just studied prophecy. A lot of you know this. It is a 100% certainty that one day we're all going to be gathered together, right? And when we're all gathered together, you do know, right, that we will actually, literally meet all of the characters in the body of Christ face to face. We will actually know them, and they will know us. The Bible talks about this great event, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And when we enter into that marriage supper of the Lamb and the bride has made herself ready and all the attendants are there at the beginning of the millennium, I believe, and when all that comes down, this is a feast. This is a party, y'all. And, and you know as well as I do, food and fellowship are centered around, I mean, hanging out with conversation. Food. We're, we're having a supper. We're having a supper because we're going to have fellowship. And when you're having supper... And fellowship, you're having conversation. Man, I don't want to be at that supper and have nothing to say. You imagine the stories? Can you imagine the things that people are going to be able to share about how God worked in and through them and the things that they suffered so the Lord could be glorified? Can you imagine all the things that have taken place that we don't have a clue? Nobody ever wrote about them. It's going to be unbelievable. And, and somebody's going to be over here saying, yeah, pass the salt. <laughs> 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 you know what this study's going to do for you? It should move you to tears. It, it should move you to count the cost. And it should move you to action. That's what it should do. Just like the Lord's Supper does in your individual Christian life, That's what church history will do for you. And that's what we're going to get into next week. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, Lord, we are humbled as always. Lord, thank you for the perspective. Thank you for the certainty of the fact that when you wrote this, it was already done. It was already done. So it's exact. And thank you for the fact that you give us a glimpse of who you really are, And man, if we can get that glimpse, Lord, my prayer, if we can just get that glimpse today of who you really are, then we, like John, will fall on our face as dead. Yet live, because you'll pick us up, fear not, and you'll live through us. Lord, I want to pray, if anybody's here and they would say, man, I've never understood this. I've never surrendered my life like that to the Lord Jesus Christ, but boy, I sure want to. I pray, Lord Jesus, that right where they're at, they would just cry out to you in simple faith, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I'm a sinner. I've blown it. I, I, I've never understood this, but man, I want your mercy. I want your forgiveness. Please forgive me my sins and come to my heart, my life, and give me eternal life. For most of us, Lord, we've already done that, but for whatever reason, we get all caught up in all the stuff and all of our comforts of life, and all of our busyness, and all our time-saving gadgets that rob us of all our time. We never get around to doing anything for you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would have your perspective, and going forward as we learn, of history, which places us exactly where we are, so we know exactly what we need to do before it's too late. Lord Jesus, bring revival to our hearts. And continue to give us that courage to stand in the midst of adversity, not be surprised, expect it, and stand because you did. We desire, Lord, to be a church full of overcomers, overcomers. And pray these things in your holy name. Amen.